if you'll turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 24, we'll be looking at um, Paul's speech before Felix at Caesarea. But before we uh, start, let's uh, open an order of prayer. Let's pray. Gracious God, we do thank you for uh, the love you've shown to us and mercy that you uh, so richly display to us each and every day, that we uh, aren't treated each day as we deserve, but we receive the, the mercy of forgiveness and the abundance of your grace. We thank you for how you have so um, merciful, mercifully given us your word to instruct us that uh, in the lives of people like Paul, you have shown us how you work uh, in our lives. You show us how uh, we too are to have a holy boldness as we speak your truth to power and as we faithfully uh, witness and testify to our resurrected Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, just as you gave uh, the Holy Spirit uh, in abundance to your church in Acts, may that same Spirit that dwells in us um, fill us abundantly that we might um, be guided into all truth concerning Jesus. Um, guide us in that truth by that Spirit this day, we pray in Christ's name, by the power of that Spirit. Amen. All right, so as you turn with me in your Bibles to Acts 24, I'll remind us where we are in the book of Acts. So we are now in the final a section that covers roughly the final quarter of the book of Acts. And this final quarter, or fourth, of Acts um, documents Paul's arrest in Jerusalem and then his eventual journey in captivity to Rome, where the book will end. In chapter 21, Paul had been visiting the temple with four men who had undertaken a um, ritual vow of purification. While they were in the temple, some men from Asia loudly accused Paul of desecrating it by bringing foreigners into it. A riot broke out, and the crowd would have killed Paul if not for the intervention of a Roman cohort, who quickly arrived and dragged Paul away, not so much to save him, but to um, bring this public disturbance to an end. Um, the final section of Acts, most of the speeches are defense speeches, and in chapter 22, we saw the first of those uh, defense speeches of Paul. There, Paul asked that Roman tribune who had um, arrested him to, for permission to address the crowd. And this tribune, seeking to quiet this disturbance, allows him. And in a Hebrew tongue, Paul defended himself, not focusing on the immediate charge that he had brought a Gentile into the temple, but by giving his testimony, by telling his story, how he too had lived a life um, as a, as a uh, believing Jew, that he had been even of the strictest sects, a Pharisee taught by Gamaliel, and he too had been a persecutor of the way, a, a persecutor of the followers of Jesus. And then Paul goes into how he, his life was changed by this blinding encounter with the glory of God on the road to Damascus, and that it's the God of their fathers that's turned him into a follower of Christ. Paul argues that it is his being faithful to God and preaching about Jesus as fulfillment of the divine promise. The same God of their fathers sent Paul to be a witness to the Gentiles. And when he mentions Gentiles in that first speech, the crowd reacted loudly, no doubt feeling confirmed in their suspicions about Paul. But the central message of that first defense was that Paul used to be where the crowd is now, a faithful Jew and persecutor of the church. But God's intervention made him otherwise, with the implication it could change them too. It's Paul's faithfulness to the God of their fathers that compelled him to preach among the Gentiles. Last week, um, in chapter 23, we looked at Paul's second defense speech. This one he made before the high priest and the council of the elders uh, assembled in the Jewish Sanhedrin. Paul had just barely begun 
um, in Luke's narration uh, by declaring his um, that he's all he's done, he says, I've lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And with that remark, the high priest ordered him struck. Paul's response to being struck is to basically uh, curse the one who, um, who gave the order, calling him a whitewashed wall, and warn that God would strike him for having struck Paul contrary to the law. Those present in the council rebuked Paul for insulting the high priest, for to revile the high priest, as Paul himself acknowledged, is against the law. Paul pled ignorance of the fact that it was the high priest to whom he had spoken and publicly acknowledged, again, this principle that, um, that um, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Then Paul and the council shifted gears. Um, in this case, he, he goes a little on the offensive. Um, Knowing the theological divide between the Sadducees and Pharisees in the council, Paul appeals to his roots as a Pharisee and his belief in hope and resurrection, two themes that the Pharisees emphasized in um, opposition to the Sadducees who tended to shun eschatology and to deny resurrection. So uh, the Pharisees and Sadducees get in a fight with the Pharisees, or some of the Pharisees, explicitly defending Paul and, and coming to um, his defense by saying, you know, um, who's to say he hasn't seen a spirit or an angel? Um, saying there's nothing wrong with these views uh, of the resurrection. Um, and here again, Paul once again is establishing this principle that Christianity is the natural and promised extension of Jewish hope embedded in the law and prophets. And there's nothing um, uh, subversive or contradictory about preaching resurrection and being a faithful Jew. After the council, we saw that the Lord appeared to Paul at night, stating, take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. Um, and uh, Tim Curran, after last week, came up and you know, noted how we don't hear what Paul's reaction to the rest of the events in the chapter. Like, so the rest of the chapter is this plot against his life. He gets smuggled out of the city under guard at night. He's taken to Caesarea. We don't get any of Paul's thoughts on that. But... Um, but, but Tim you know, noted how comforting like, this appearance of the Lord to him to let him know like, the, the coming days are going to be tumultuous, but you are going to testify in Rome just as you've been my witness in Jerusalem. Um, so uh, chapter 23 ended with Paul now in Caesarea, now in the hands of Governor Felix, um, and setting up uh, what we have in chapter 24, which is Paul's hearing before Felix in Caesarea. So let me read for us Acts chapter 24, beginning in verse 1. And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation in every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly, for we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world, and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. And you'll note the ESV doesn't have a verse 7. <laughs> so if you look down at the bottom, um, uh, they've made the judgment that verse 7 is in a later edition. Some manuscripts add, and we would have judged him according to our law, but the chief captain Lysias, came and with great violence took him out of our hands, commanding his accusers to come before you. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him 
about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. And when the governor nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. And they did not find me disputing with anyone or storing up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Now after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and to make an accusation should they have anything against me. Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing, that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, When Lysias the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus, and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Thus far, God's holy and inerrant word, may he enlarge it in our hearts and wills and minds as we talk about it this morning. So let's start. Um, so we have uh, this trial setting, and the high priest and some elders come to Caesarea um, to accuse Paul, but, but Luke records only the words of Tertullus um, as their spokesman. So what strikes you about Tertullus's speech, um, his, his manner of speaking, and then what specific accusations does he make against Paul? Yeah, Rob. <laughs> yeah, he, he's, a, he's a hired gun. He's, the word is literally, he's a rhetorician. Like, so this is someone who um, is a professional uh, speaker, uh, and particularly a professional speaker before court. Yeah, so let's, let's examine. So what are these specific charges that he makes? Okay, so he's someone who has stirred up riots, not just in Jerusalem, notice, but among all the Jews throughout the world. <laughs> yeah, but has he been, in the word there, stirred up? Like, he's the instigator. Like, you know, he's the one who's, you know, who's, who's stirred up these events, and that's the kind of idea of, you know, an instigator is one who stirs things up. So, so charge one, he is an instigator of riots, and notice, like, that's a, that's a political charge. Um, it's a political accusation. 
Yep. They're, and Tertullus is doing, you know, they don't care about whether Paul is a faithful Jew or not, but they do care about keeping the peace. <laughs> That's what they're there for, uh, to maintain law and order. Um, and so, yeah, so he is shifting the charge to make it that Paul is an open agitator, disturber of the peace, wherever he goes. Um, and that this recent one, this is just the most recent of his troublemaking. Yeah, because we have seen trouble where Paul's gone. <laughs> yeah, Ronnie. <laughs> yeah, but everywhere Paul's gone, you know, Asia, uh, Greece, Macedonia, there have been disturbances. Yeah, so he's a ringleader. Um, he is, he's, he's an agitator, but he's not alone. Like he, there's a bunch of these people. He's a ringleader of these Nazareans. And again, notice the um, Tertullus, uh, again, like he's the Johnny Cochran of the Roman world. Um, you know, he, he's, he's skillful in phrasing things to, to appeal to Felix. So he's, he's not the ringleader of a sect of, you know, a theological sect, Nazareans, like that's putting a region to it. Like he's emphasizing that this has a regional specificity, um, like, again, emphasizing that there's a locus of trouble, um, and there are lots of these um, people, but he's not saying a leader of a theological sect, like by using Nazareth as the identifier it's more of a regional locator for Jesus rather than the other term, which, you know, Luke goes, makes it clear. Felix is familiar with the way, um, but that's not what Tertullus is, is emphasizing in his charge. Absolutely, he starts with this, you know, flattery. Um, again, he's professional, so he's good at it. <laughs> um, you know, this professional flattery, and he's emphasizing, you know, this fact that since through you, you know, again, the emphasis is on through you, Felix, we enjoy much peace. By your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made. Like, we're, we're happy you're here, we're happy the changes you're making. You're doing a great job keeping the peace. But this guy <laughs> is upsetting everything you're trying to do. Like he's trying to upend your entire wise, peaceful agenda. Um, again, he's laying it on, on pretty thick, but that's what you pay someone like Tertullus to do, to lay it on thick. Um, good, so he's... He's an um, instigator. He's the ringleader of a sect. What other charges? Um, yeah, so then he gets to the specific one. Um, there's actually, we could say it's a charge, accusation. This, it's a, we found this man a plague. Like, you know, he's a pest. Like, like if we were saying it today, we would say, like, he is a cancer to society. Like, so... Um, you know, he's, he's labeled him, he's this pestilence among us, and, you know, and again, with disease, like, it's that idea of infection and contagion, and, like, this guy, he, he's infectious, and he's an instigator, and he's a ringleader of a sect, and he, dis, you know, he profaned the temple. So that's where, you know, we're getting to the specific charge. But first, he's kind of laying all these 
like the background, you know, this guy, he's a pest, he's a troublemaker wherever he goes, he's a ringleader, and that's what brought him to the temple to purposely profane it. Um, Yeah? Yeah, but the specific charge, you know, that 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 this day. But you're right. Like and again, that's that's effective lies often have that kernel of truth. And, and Tertullus is pretty confident. Examine him yourself. You'll find out from him everything of which we accuse him. Like, yeah. He's, he's setting the terms for trying to, yeah, to, to get Paul in trouble, again, politically, um, because that's what Felix is ultimate concern is, is maintaining peace, law, and order. It's why Felix's inability to do this is what ends up with him being replaced by the end of this chapter. Yeah, trying to, again, like, it, it's not just a, a simple internal disturbance. Like, this is, there's a pattern. Um, uh, good. Anything else we want to say about Tertullus? Um, Well, they end up doing it by their rebellion. They end up profaning the temple far more than... <laughs> yeah. Um, and in this case, we talked some about this last week. Um, Ananias, the high priest, is actually killed um, within two years of this um, for being, a, or being seen as a Roman collaborator. Um, and as we talked about last week, um, I mean, we're... we're 12 to 10 to 12 years away from the destruction of the temple. So um, Jews are increasingly rebellious and troublesome, which is why Felix, you know, we know from other sources, the reason Felix gets pulled from this job is because things are seen as getting worse in Judea and he needs to be replaced. Um, he doesn't have the greatest reputation as a, uh, a royal or a Roman governor. Um, too self-interested, maybe, <laughs> as we kind of see with him asking for a bribe later. Um, you know, uh, uh, yeah, um, it, it just ineffectual um, might be the, the best way. Um, and, and personally, uh, the, a lot of the charges are, um, people label against him are more of that kind of, he lacked the personal characteristics to make a good governor. All right, well, let's get to, to Paul's defense. So we have uh, Tertullus lays out uh, on behalf of the high priest and the elders um, this case against Paul. Um, and the Jews joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. And now, I, I love Luke's description here. Uh, Felix, he gives Paul the, the nod. <laughs> uh, you know, all right, your turn. Um, so how does Paul go about defending himself against these, these charges laid against him?
Well, he does a little, but not as much. He doesn't lay it on. Knowing that for many years you've been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. So, you know, I, I know your position as a judge. You've done it for years. I, I will happily make my defense before you. Like, you know, it... Yeah, no, he's not buttering, laying it on thick like Tertullus, but he's still doing, because again, that's, it's the standard judicial procedure is to say something nice about the judge before you move on. Um, so he, he does it a little. I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm happy to lay my case before you. Yeah, because he's got a clean conscience. Forget the flattery. <laughs> Remember your, what you're here for, you know. And and I will confidently lay my case before you. Um, because again, as Paul says in it, I have a clear conscience before God and man, um, you know, that, that he's done nothing wrong. Like his conscience is clear, so he can, yeah, absolutely stand before Felix confidently, or, or with confidence, knowing that he hasn't committed any wrong worthy of, not only worthy of punishment by the Romans, but he hasn't done anything wrong in his his defense here against Judaism. Like, he hasn't committed any wrong against the Jews, nor has he committed a wrong against the Roman state to lead him to be charged in this fashion. Yeah, I wouldn't often recommend people to defend themselves, but... Um, <laughs> Paul does a pretty good job. He doesn't have to hire a Tertullus to, to come in and be a spokesman. Um, he does a pretty good job. So, uh, yeah, so specifically, what are some of the specific ways that Paul goes about making his defense? Or what does he emphasize um, in this defense before Felix? Okay. So, um, not only was he not leading a riot, um, you know, I was going along minding my own business, <laughs> doing the rites of purification in the temple, not disturbing a soul. <laughs> and then these guys came along, and they seized me, and they stirred up a riot. So, like, you know, but he positions himself as, look, I, I showed up in this country 12 days ago. I was going to the temple, going through the rites of purification, um, you know, I, I didn't go into any synagogue and create a disturbance. I, I've been on my best behavior, just going to the temple daily for the rites of purification. And notice he's come on this act of charity. Um, this is new information. Um, I mean, we get it from epistles, but Luke hasn't told us that Paul has been bringing this offering to the Jerusalem church. We know from, you know, letters he talks about raising and offering and taking it to Jerusalem. So it's a, a, a mission of um, mercy that's brought him to this country. As he's, I've come to my nation to bring these alms. Um, if you remember earlier in the book, we talked about how there was this um, uh, famine throughout the Mediterranean world that was prophesied. So Jerusalem has been hurting. Um, and so here he's come bringing alms, going to the temple, doing these rites of purification, not doing um, anything to stir up trouble. And someone else grabbed him in the temple and created the commotion. Um, he shaved it. We saw him shaving his head earlier for a purification. Um, uh, 
For this one, uh, there's a lot of debate over which ritual purification he's going through, um, and whether he himself was doing it, or if, because, you know, um, in 21, um, it, James suggests he take four men who are undergoing it and kind of be their sponsor, um, that kind of idea. So there's a lot of kind of debate over which particular purification. Is this a Nazarite vow that's being fulfilled that would involve shaving of the head? Um, we did see him shave his head in fulfillment of a vow earlier in the book. <laughs> no, because he's still in the middle of a... Um, and it's, it's not him that they, well, they recognize him, but it's, it's people from Asia, so people who knew him in Ephesus um, or in the region around Ephesus um, are the ones who've made the accusation. And who, as Paul says, those are the guys that started the riot. Where are they? <laughs> they should be here. Um, they should be the ones who are standing before you, not me. Yeah. <laughs> um, yep. Um, uh, yeah. <laughs> Something in the timeline uh, doesn't seem to fit. Um, and again, he's emphasizing, you know, his he's come out of fidelity to his nation. Like, you know, it's out of his faithfulness to the nation he's brought alms. It's out of fidelity to the nation that he is or fidelity to Judaism that he's undergone these purification rites at the temple. He has not been doing anything to subvert or pervert Judaism in his view. Um, what is specifically, um, so he not only defends himself, but as in all of his defenses, Paul uses um, an opportunity to present aspects um, of the gospel. Um, so what what does Paul want to emphasize about what he refers to um, in this chapter as the way? Um, what are the main theological truths that he wants to lay before Felix in this trial? Resurrection. Um, and again, notice it's, that was the same thing he had said the, you know, last week um, in chapter 23, in the chapter before. I, I'm standing here before you because of my belief in the resurrection of the dead, um, which, again, we talked some last week, was Paul just trying to stir up trouble, or was he trying to, in a kind of knowing your audience way, um, get, you know, get his message across where part of the audience is going to agree with him, um, and especially in the presence of an opposing force, they're going to be kind of pushed to agree with him. So they could, you know, so it, just as he had done the chapter before, He's emphasizing his hope in the resurrection and that there's nothing incompatible with belief in resurrection and Judaism. Good. What else would you say he's trying to theologically emphasize? Yeah, and, and the way Luke has used sect throughout the book. So the Pharisees, he's labeled a sect. The Sadducees, he's labeled a sect. He's even labeled the way um, as a sect prior. Um, so there, again, as there's some truth in this. But Paul's saying, look, we're more than just one offshoot or you know, one subdivision. What I'm speaking before you, um, you know, I'm coming before you um, 
believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God which these men themselves accept. He's, he's making a claim about a much, you know, not just about the specific things my group believes, but he's making a claim about what um, should be the belief of Judaism as a whole. Um, you know, he's trying to make a, a claim about all the law and the prophets pointed to the coming of this, this resurrected Savior who is, who, is, who is the way of life and salvation. Like that, that is, and again, it's this theme we've seen in Paul in the last several weeks of Christianity being the fulfillment of the hope of the law and prophets. They all were pointing toward the coming of this Christ and, and this resurrected Savior is the hope of, of Israel. It, it is the hope of the law and prophets that not a subversion of Judaism or a, you know, offshoot of it, but a fulfillment of its, of its true purposes. Yeah, Brian. An internal little dispute. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Again, he's putting it out there. Um, you know that um, what he's saying is consistent with Judaism, um, and that there's a party of Judaism that doesn't like it. You know this view of resurrection. But, you know, it's not that he's disperser. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, yeah, that, again, that, um, and this has been his, his theme, um, that, that what he's presenting is merely the, the hope of Judaism. Um, it's, it's not intended to be divisive or sectarian. It's meant to be the fulfillment of the promises he sees in the Old Testament. And that's it's these other people that are in, not interested in hearing that message, that are causing the trouble. Anything else we want to say about his public defense? Because I want to spend a little time on his private conversation with um, Felix and Drusilla. So, um, so in addition to his public defense, Paul also has an opportunity, and as Luke narrates it, um, multiple opportunities to, to speak with, with Felix um, so he, he gives us a little glimpse of, of how he talks to Felix and Felix's Jewish wife, Drusilla. So, um, and Luke narrates that um, in reaction to it, Felix was alarmed <laughs> um, by what Paul told him. So just from the little snippet, um, what is Paul presenting before Felix and why does it disturb Felix? Yeah, the, the judgment to come. Like, he gives us these three things. Um, he reasoned about, so he's speaking about faith in Jesus Christ, so, and then he's, he's speaking, reasoning about righteousness, self-control, and the coming judgment. Um, and he does it in a way, um, yeah, in, in reasoning, I, and I like 
Luke's choice of words there. He's, he's, he's laying the case that there is, there's a standard of justice, of righteousness, morality, um, that there is this need for self-control, and there is this, this coming judgment. Um, you know, earlier he talked about resurrection of the just and unjust. Well, there's also going to be a judgment um, that um, accompanies that resurrection. You want to say something? And you too, you know, will be subject to judgment. Um, you know, this final judgment. Good. What else would you say about Paul's conversation with, uh, with Felix and Drusilla here? Why would, yeah. Okay. So we could see why judgment might be disturbing. Um, what about self-control? Like, why throw that one in? Any ideas? So why would that self-control? I think you're on the right path, <laughs> or a right path. So why would his marriage, I think, so flesh it out a little. Why would Drusilla's, his marriage to Drusilla? Okay, no, but your inference, um, so Drusilla, this is her second marriage. This is Felix's third. Um, and the way Josephus tells the story that when um, Felix shows up, Drusilla was teenage beauty queen. Um, you know, she's roughly around 20 years old um, right now. Um, Felix comes, she uh, and and woos her away from her first husband by an arranged marriage. Um, so um, he he's taken another man's wife, um, and he himself has had other wives that he's put aside. Um, and, and in this case, I mean, again, maybe reading too much in it, like, but some people have, have read it and said, he's actually laying a, a pretty, you know, it, it's a lot like John the Baptist before Herod, um, you know, kind of having an opportunity to condemn a ruler for his, you know, his own sinfulness. Um, and just as Herod was alarmed by what John the Baptist said, so some people read it as Felix being alarmed by the charges that Paul's laying before him. That again, it's not, at this point, we, we've moved beyond Paul's case, and we're, we're seeing how Paul is dealing with an individual sinner who happens to be a powerful ruler. Um, so he is not unafraid of confronting a powerful person with his sinfulness. Yeah, and, and you know, Luke gives us Felix is he's doing two things. Um, he's hoping for a bribe. Um, he hoped money would be given him by Paul. Um, and then he, he thinks that he's doing the Jews a favor by keeping Paul locked up. So he wants a bribe from Paul. Um, you know, Paul, you grease the wheels. Doors will open. But in the meantime, the Jews seem pretty happy he's locked up and me not doing anything with him. So, you know, so it's a little of, of him... Um, trying to, you know, keep the peace in Judea by doing something that pleases the Jewish Sanhedrin, but also hoping to profit from his position of power by um, thinking Paul will offer him a bribe. I mean, some people have said that, you know, this line that, you know, again, that he knows, um, he knows about the way, um, he has knowledge of this group. And Paul himself has just said, 
I've brought alms and offerings. So maybe some people have wondered if he, he knows that, that, as we saw earlier, Christians are willing to pool their resources to help one another, that maybe they'll pool their resources and come up with a sizable ransom or bribe to get Paul out of jail. Um, again, like he's got enough knowledge of the situation on the ground to kind of know the parties involved, um, as Brian said earlier, and he, he knows enough about, uh, about Christianity to n- know some about their willingness to, to help one another. So even Paul, we might think, why would you think Paul would, would be able to you know, fork over a bribe? Well, Paul just raised and brought to Jerusalem a fairly significant sum of money from throughout the Mediterranean world that Christians giving to the church, to believers in Jerusalem, to alleviate their suffering. Who's to say they couldn't do the same thing to alleviate Paul's suffering? Yes, Scott. Yeah, that, and he's, you know, he, he's hearing the message. Like, again, it, how receptive he is, you know, Luke doesn't tell us. But we certainly see some conviction. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, you know, that being alarmed, um, if nothing else, he, he's taking Paul's words to, to heart in some way. Um, you know, um, again, I, and a lot of people have noted how similar this is to what happened with John the Baptist and Herod. Like he is, he's laid a case that um, you know, Herod clearly sees himself as violating this moral law and standing under judgment, and he doesn't like it. And so his response was to, to get rid of, of John. Um, whereas here, you know, we're, we'll keep Paul locked up, but still hearing from him. Yes, Rob. Um, well one uh, bribes are technically illegal um, so that would probably be uh, against that um, being of clear conscience before God and man Um, so he's not willing to do the illegal action for the sake of personal freedom but two God's already told him you're going to Rome um, the, the end of this is you will be my witness in, in Rome. Um, and again, it's not the, not the way I would book my travel to Rome, but, you know, as a prisoner with a two-year hiatus, um, <laughs> um, presumably, uh, I mean, uh, he's, he's, again, Luke tells us he's not forbidden from seeing anybody, interacting with anybody. His friends can come and, and meet his, his physical needs. Um, you know, um, the Romans provided a bare minimum of, of what a prisoner needed to live, um, anticipating that a person's friends, relations would supply those needs. Um, and Paul has access to those friends and relations who are supplying his needs. Yeah, and we know, again, from, from, um, from later parts that even those in the household of Caesar have come to faith. Like, you know, the story of Paul going forward is, is a lot of Paul not doing the, the big public evangelism we've seen, like going to a town, going to a synagogue, um, 
then going and, and speaking in the town market. Um, it's him speaking to Roman officials and guards, um, you know, um, uh, you know, he's speaking to those people in positions of power. Um, but it's still, you know, we still often label this as Paul's fourth missionary journey. But the people we see Paul speaking to throughout this isn't, he's not on the Areopagus anymore. Um, you know, he's not um, outside the Temple of Artemis. Um, you know, he's in chains, but he's speaking to governors and tribunes and, you know, these people in, in authority. Um, and he's not afraid to confront them with the truth of their own sinfulness. All right, uh, we are just about time, but anybody else want to say anything else on this chapter as a whole? Um, so again, in, in sum, um, Paul is making this, this case that Christianity isn't, a, uh, isn't an illegal um, entity. It's not a political threat to the Roman state. It is a um, faithful belief in the hope of Israel. So it's a a new faith, um, but it's rooted in the old faith. It's the fulfillment of the old faith. It's not a sectarian breaking away from that old faith, but it's fulfillment of the, the hope um, extended by the law and prophets. All right, let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you uh, for the hope that we have uh, in Jesus Christ, um, the hope uh, for his perfect righteousness and the forgiveness of sins, the hope of resurrection and new life, life eternally with you, uh, gathered with um, people from every tongue and nation to worship you. And indeed, that is the fulfillment of the, your promise that you made to Abraham, that you would be his God and the God of his offspring, and, the, and through him um, all the nations would come to believe in you. And Lord, we uh, thank you for the privilege to anticipate that uh, heavenly worship by our act of worship in the coming hour. Uh, help us open our hearts before you in prayer, humbly submit ourselves to your word, confess our sins, but finding your uh, gracious and free pardon um, in your gospel and good news that we can... Um, be united together, one in Christ, uh, at your table. Help us to, to worship you in spirit and truth, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.